Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up in Forum, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin gathered military leaders from 40 countries today, exacting new pledges from Germany and other countries to supply more heavy weapons to Ukraine. That's led Russia to accuse the West of engaging in a proxy war against the country. We analyze these developments. Then Twitter has agreed to sell the company to Elon Musk in a deal valued at about $44 billion. We look at what it could mean for a self-described free speech absolutist to own a social platform that influences our culture and politics. Join us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Russia's top diplomat says the West is risking World War III. By sending arms to Ukraine, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says NATO is fighting a proxy war with Russia. His remarks come as the U.S. and its Western allies send more heavy weapons to Ukraine and Russian forces refocus their attacks on Ukraine's eastern and southern borders. Joining me now with the latest is James Marson, European security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. James, really glad to have you with us. Pleasure to be here. So these remarks by Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov, what is provoking them? Well, these are fairly typical uh, remarks for senior Russian officials. Um, The Russians from the very beginning have seen uh, this conflict as a proxy conflict. Uh, They see, uh, they think that NATO, uh, led by the US, um, is trying to uh, boost Ukraine up as a kind of anti-Russia aimed at destabilizing and weakening Russia. Um, they ignore, uh, and in fact, they try. They are trying. They've explicitly said that they're trying to destroy the statehood of Ukraine, um, and therefore, what they see is happening here is that NATO is providing uh, significant weapons uh, to Ukraine um, in order to try to weaken Russia. That's their vision of how this conflict is playing out. Um, now, uh, things are not going as well as the Russians would have hoped. Um, they thought that they could very quickly uh, uh, take over Ukraine. That, is, that has not happened. And so the West has been, uh, uh, has felt strengthened by this. And uh, as we've seen today, um, is, is, more, uh, is moving towards providing uh, uh, bigger, stronger and more uh, weapons and ammunition to Ukraine in order to fight off the Russians. Yes. So talk a little bit more about that. As you say, we have heard these kinds of comments from Russia before, but the stage we're at in this war and the response by the West and Western allies is making those comments more notable. So how are the supply of arms to Ukraine and the rhetoric from the West, how are they changing? Um, Well, they've changed very much since the very beginning of this conflict, because when uh, when Russia, excuse me, invaded um, February the 24th, 
Um, a lot of people in the West expected that uh, that Ukraine's uh, army wouldn't be able to hold out uh, uh, particularly long. Um, but in fact, uh, Ukraine's army pushed the Russians back from Kiev. The Russians thought they could have a lightning attack on the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, topple its government, perhaps install a, a puppet government that was more favorable towards Moscow. And that hasn't happened. Ukraine's army, with the help of its civilians uh, and with the help of arms supplies from the West, has held off uh, the Russians and, and forced them to retreat uh, away from Kiev. Now the Russians are pushing in the east of Ukraine. Um, they're advancing slowly. They're advancing with a lot of violence. There's a lot of shelling, a lot of bombing of, uh, of towns, of both military and civilian uh, uh, objects. Um, and so we're into a, a war of attrition at this stage. Um, and a wars of attrition are all about logistics. It's about supplying weapons, supplies of ammunition, um, and the West uh, today having a meeting, uh, it was led by the US in Germany, um, which was all about coordinating those arms supplies, those weapons supplies to Ukraine in order to help them um, uh, not only to, to uh, be able to defend themselves against Russia, but to be able to, uh, to push the Russians back. You know, we heard uh, uh, US Secretary of Defense uh, Lloyd Austin say uh, yesterday that the they were using the word, he was using the word victory. He was using the word winning, um, which is something we haven't really heard so much before. So the emphasis is on um, uh, weakening uh, Russia, as, as, as the Secretary of Defense said, um, in order to prevent Russia from doing this kind of thing in the future. Yes, a marked change in terms of the rhetoric, which I want to get into with you a little bit more, but also just from your reporting today as well, just about the fact that Germany is providing its first major delivery of non-Soviet weapons and that the UK is basically giving the green light to a more aggressive stance and use of weapons towards Russia. These are these are pretty significant developments. So related to Blinken's comments, Secretary of State Antony Blinken's comments about how Russia is failing in its war aims and Lloyd Austin's comments about Russia needing to be weakened and being weakened to the point to the, that it cannot invade the way that it has again. Is that the kind of thing that you're reporting is showing you in terms of, I know that you have been on the ground, that you have been covering this extensively, um, that you have, uh, that your wife is Ukrainian and so on. I mean, is this the kind of thing that you are seeing? And is this the kind of thing that Ukrainians are feeling in terms of Ukraine is succeeding? Uh, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I was in Ukraine uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was, I was traveling around uh, around Kiev, around the capital, um, looking at the successes that the, uh, the Ukrainian army had had there. And there was one particular incident to the, to the, uh, to the east of the capital where um, a column of about 70 Russian armored vehicles had been decimated by Russian, uh, by, excuse me, by Ukrainian uh, anti-tank weapons, uh, some of which had been provided by the West and by Ukrainian artillery. Um, around 20 or more of those vehicles had, had been taken out over a period of a couple or three hours. Um, so in terms of being able to degrade um, Russia's mili military capabilities, uh, Ukraine has shown that it has been able to do that. But what the Ukrainians are saying now is that we need uh, more weapons, we need heavier weapons, we need more artillery um, in, in order to be able to continue doing this. You know, Russia, um, a lot of the, the Ukrainian officers and, and soldiers that I've spoken with say that uh, it's not so much that uh, Russia has a strong army, it's that Russia has a long army. So it has a big army that can send more and more 
tanks and more and more troops. Yeah. And so what they've been asking for from the West is, is more weapons, bigger weapons. And slowly this is happening. Uh, we've seen uh, the US and the UK have obviously been at the forefront of this as they have from the very beginning. Uh, but what we've heard today is that uh, Germany is going to refurbish um, and send to Ukraine um, some anti, uh, anti-aircraft cannon tanks, um, uh, which, which had been decommissioned. Um, it's going to provide about 50 of those uh, self-propelled guns to, uh, to Ukraine, which is a big uh, change for that country, which has really been reluctant uh, uh, to send any of the, these kind of heavier weapons. What is support among Russians for the invasion like right now? I know they can't speak honestly publicly, but what are your impressions that the, tr- the toll that the, the troop deaths, the economic turmoil are having in terms of public support there? Uh, the support is extremely high. Um, you know, th- some some in the West like to say that uh, you know this is Putin's war. Uh, it's not Putin's war; it's Russia's war. A lot a lot of people uh, in Russia um, agree with what Putin is doing. Support for Putin is 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 very high. Support for the war is very high. Um, I've seen some uh, some work that uh, various colleagues in different media have been doing, uh, looking into even you know the the mothers of some of these uh, these soldiers who've been killed in Ukraine coming out saying you know this is this is the uh, we're doing the right thing you know my, my son died for died for something which which is right um, which is which is interesting because you know you, you can fall into the mindset of you know if if one gets rid of the authoritarian leader the dictator in this case Putin. Um, you can solve a problem, um, but but that isn't the that isn't the case. Uh, I, I don't think here that um, actually that there is a lot of support for this. There is a lot of um, agreement with Putin's uh, assessment of the situation that Ukraine uh, isn't a real country and that that they need to destroy its nationhood, its statehood, um, and, uh, and and therefore a lot of support for what is happening now. How that will change. Um, as a result of the the Western sanctions um, which have been put on Russia, um, as a result of potentially, as you've mentioned, these these losses which are already high and and, and will continue to climb, um, um, that that remains to be seen. Well, we are learning more grim news every day. I know that you've reported about it in terms of atrocities against Ukrainian civilians. We are hearing that with the losses, Russian troops are frustrated, angry. Will this brutality continue despite the exposure that it's been getting? Um, I think uh, one thing we we have to be we have to be clear about here is that this is not uh, uh, some sort of mistake. This is not um, this is not um, even even something which they've tried particularly hard to cover up in in in, in Bucha. You know the most uh, the clearest example of, of atrocities that we've seen um, in this in this uh, town of Bucha near uh, near Kiev, where you had. Uh, people dead on the street, people with their hands bound, and then and then uh, shot in the, shot in the head. I mean, looks very much like an execution. Um, this this isn't an, an anomaly. I mean, this is the this is the way of war of of, of the Russian army, and uh, you know the, the reports uh, of of uh, of rape um, and and killing and and looting um, of civilians uh, are so widespread in Ukraine. Um, that it is not the case. I don't think that we can say that this is uh, this is something um, you know shocking. Uh, I mean, to us it's shocking, but it's not. It's perhaps not uh, not surprising when one hears these reports anymore from from various towns um, as as they've been liberated uh, by the Ukrainians. Um, so so unfortunately, uh, you know, I think there are perhaps worse things to come out. Take the city of of Mariupol in the in the in the southeast of of Ukraine, which has been. 
uh, surrounded from very early on in the invasion. Um, and the Russians have absolutely obliterated it. I mean, there's almost nothing left if you look at any of the, the sort of satellite footage or the drone footage that you see, see of that city. You know, a city of several hundred thousand people um, has been really, uh, really uh, devastated. Um, and, and one uh, can only worry about uh, the, kind of, uh, the kind of stories that are going to come out of there. Um, if indeed they can, because the Russians are now more or less in control, uh, total control of that city um, and uh, uh, and likely not to want those stories to come out. So UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is meeting with Mr. Lavrov and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Is there any chance that that could lead to something productive in your view, James? Uh, no. Uh, there, there's uh, no chance of a, a, a peace agreement uh, at this stage um, because no, uh, no side has, has won uh, clearly on the battlefield at the moment. Um, yes, the Russians have been handed a defeat um, uh, around Kiev, uh, but in the east, you know, they've changed their focus to the east of the country. They're now in a grinding uh, war uh, to take territory. You know, they're going village by village. They're trying to encircle the large Ukrainian force in the east of the country. Uh, so uh, both sides uh, feel they have still have a chance of victory, um, and, and both sides really don't have anywhere to retreat to. Uh, you know, Ukraine is fighting for its country. Um, it's it's uh, and Russia really feels like it needs to win. Um, so uh, unfortunately, I, I think uh, you know the only way we're going to get to peace here is is through a victory on the battlefield. James Marson, European security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. You, our listeners, are invited to ask your questions. Share your comments at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786 to post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or email them to forum at kqed.org. James Marson, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. We'll have more after the break on the war in Ukraine. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Russia has renewed its attacks on eastern and southern Ukraine as the U.S. and Western nations send fresh supplies of arms to Ukraine's military to thwart Russian forces. More than eight weeks into the war, peace talks have stalled and reports of Russian brutality against civilians continue to mount, as does the death toll. Joining me now to analyze the latest developments and the trajectory of Russia's unprovoked war on Ukraine is Michael Kimmage, professor of history at Catholic University of America, 
From 2014 to 2016, Michael Kimmage served on the Secretary's policy planning staff at the U.S. Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. Professor Kimmage, really glad to have you on today. Well, thank you so much for having me. So how do you see the ratcheting up of rhetoric on the part of the U.S. from Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, as I was talking earlier with James Marson about? Well, I think that uh, Secretary Austin in particular has probably been the most assertive rhetorically uh, of the whole Biden team. And you have a little bit of message uncertainty across this team. Uh, you had President Biden in, in Poland uh, a couple of weeks ago suggesting something like a regime change policy, Secretary Austin speaking about weakening Russia, uh, and the rest of the rhetoric, the more typical rhetoric, is really about support uh, for Ukraine, which is, of course, the task that's most immediately uh, at hand. So this suggests that they're not quite sure themselves exactly where, <laughs> where they're aiming for uh, or what end state they're aiming for, uh, and that speaks in some ways just to the chaos and to the novelty of this war. Well, Noel tweets, this isn't just about defending democracy. It is also a proxy war, since the U.S. cannot directly go to war with Russia. Of course, that is what uh, Russia's top diplomat, Sergei Lavrov, has been saying, and President Vladimir Putin has said earlier. Um, but I am wondering if you feel like the fact that they are saying this right now, in terms of at a point when they've regrouped and are now trying to focus their efforts on the eastern part of Ukraine, on the Donbass region, means that they are speaking, as some analysts suspect, from a point of, of weakness or fear or, or even desperation that things are not going well for them still. Well, things are certainly not going well. I think that they're two ways in which rhetoric of a proxy war from Foreign Minister Lavrov matter uh, at the moment. And one is a, as a warning, uh, as signaling to the West, which is, of course, supplying enormous quantities of, of, of weaponry uh, and uh, substantial financial support to Ukraine. So it's a shot across the bow uh, in that regard, a sort of promise that there will be consequences. More importantly, perhaps, uh, making this a matter of a war of Russia with the West uh, helps to explain to a Russian population why things aren't going that well. You know, given how uh, Russia has defined Ukraine as a basket case and a pushover, it's hard to imagine losing a war against Ukraine from a Russian point of view. But a war against the West, the West is another matter. So it's maybe as much about domestic politics as it is about foreign policy messaging. There was a piece today in the New York Times by David Sanger who suggested that one of the reasons that the U.S. is ratcheting up its rhetoric is to be able to give Ukraine the strongest possible hand for some kind of negotiation um, as this war hopefully reaches the point of some kind of ceasefire negotiation. What do you think about that? Well, I have to be a long-term policy, I think, as as our speaker a moment ago said, James, I said a moment ago, I don't think Russia is in any mood to come to the table soon. So I doubt that there are going to be negotiations uh, in the summer or fall. But of course, the, the pressure that's being exerted at, on Russia at a moment of Russian military weakness uh, makes a lot of sense diplomatically. Uh, it's reducing the amount that Russian, Russia can ask for, and it's expanding the amount that Ukraine can ask for, but uh, for the policy really to work, I mean, I think the practical parts of it are already working, but for the policy to work, it's going to have to be a long-term one. So, yeah, let's talk about that. You have written a piece for Foreign Affairs where you posed the question, if the war does not end anytime soon, whose side is time on? You're saying that Russia isn't necessarily interested in coming to the table anytime soon. Why not? Well, I mean, 
one way of looking at this war, a very big picture way of looking at the war, is the war that, that Russia has already lost. It set political objectives for itself at the beginning, regime change, influence over all of Ukraine, that it simply cannot achieve. So it's stuck now with uh, the war that it actually has, and we'll have to come up with new uh, objectives. But it's not going to, Putin is not going to retreat uh, or immediately turn around. So he's going to find a series of medium-term objectives. Uh, and I think what Putin may be betting on, although he didn't get what he was hoping for in the French election this past Sunday, is that Western attention will weaken over time uh, and perhaps some of the commitment to Ukraine will begin uh, to dissipate and then he can push for greater uh, diplomatic advantage. But again, that's to think in a two, three-year time horizon, I suppose. But you essentially feel like a long, drawn-out, protracted war benefits the Russians? I'm not sure. Uh, I, you know, I think that they uh, have sustained enormous losses already. Uh, they may well have to face uh, Ukrainian counteroffensives. Those have been taking place already, but they could really mount uh, on the territory that Russia has conquered. And there's no guarantee that Russia will hold that territory, uh, and it may really suffer some major military blows uh, in the short term. Popularity of the war in Russia may indeed be high, uh, as James said earlier, uh, but you know, wars tend to lose popularity. Uh, over time. And of course, the effect of sanctions is going to kick in really this fall uh, and this this winter. So, you know, I think Putin has a clock uh, that ticks to his advantage. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if that will truly be the case for, for Russia in this in this war. But certainly time wouldn't necessarily benefit Ukraine. That's true. That's very true. Uh, they both face a similar set of challenges in, 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 in some ways, where, where time is really at a disadvantage for Ukraine is not so much in the military sense, it's more in the economic sense. So Russia has imposed, for example, uh, a complete naval blockade uh, on Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is a trading country. Its economy depends on access to the outside world. It's much more expensive to do this uh, with trucks or with trains. Uh, so that's a very, very significant long-term cost. Uh, and of course, the destruction that the war is causing is a different kind of cost, which is uh, to be experienced uh, in the long term. So Ukraine has some serious military advantages that I think are going to grow over time. Uh, but economically and perhaps politically, uh, it's going to be a very, very challenging uh, phase for Ukraine without, without any question. Well, in terms of its advantage growing over time, it's in part because if it can develop some military advantages based on the support and weaponry that the West is providing, it would be in a much better position to be able to negotiate with Russia. Can you just talk a little bit about right now what the Russians are essentially demanding uh, in terms of for them so that they would stop this war on Ukraine? Well, recent reporting suggests that Putin may be completely uninterested in diplomacy as such for the time being uh, and is thinking really in terms of the territory that he can conquer and then either annex uh, or set up into the kinds of republics that Russia created in 2014, these artificial Russian-controlled republics. If that's true, uh, then diplomacy really has no prospects. But I think there's probably a medium range when it comes to diplomacy, where there may be certain commitments to Ukrainian neutrality uh, and a certain acceptance, Ukrainian acceptance, of a piece of territory that Russia is going to lop off uh, and that's what the Ukrainians would have to give and what the Russians would give in turn as an end uh, to the war. You know, I think Ukraine is pretty far from making those concessions, but I think that's what Russia is looking for. 
We're talking with Michael Kimmage, professor of history, Catholic University of America, who also served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, emailing us forum at kqed.org, or posting your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. And let me go to Dorothea in Berkeley. Hi, Dorothea. Hi, Dorothy, are you there? While we try to establish that connection, let me go to another question from a listener. This listener comments, the distance between Poland and the Donbass is roughly equal to the distance between St. Louis and New York City. Russia has bombed two bridges uh, on the, I'm not sure I can say the name of this river, on the rail, the railway lines are very vulnerable. How will Ukraine transport the heavy weapons the U.S. are providing from Poland to the Donbass? Can you speak here about some of the, the challenges in terms of making sure that Ukraine gets the weapons it needs and it needs them quickly? <laughs> This is a very serious question. In fact, it's been debated among military analysts why Russia has not done more to bomb rail lines uh, and to complicate questions of transportation. So on the one hand, at least until the present moment, what's remarkable is how well Ukraine has been able to maintain these transportation lines, and that's been crucial to the war effort. But it's very possible that Russia will step up air attacks or missile attacks uh, on, uh, on these kinds of assets, uh, and that could make things very difficult. It's, it's, it's a crucial point. The size of Ukraine is enormous. It's the second largest country territorially uh, in Europe, uh, and that's actually worked to Russia's disadvantage in a number of ways, uh, but it's not always an advantage for Ukraine. And this listener writes, since Putin and his cronies are not persuadable, they need to be subject to the power of the Western alliance of free countries, whatever it takes. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. The question that I think is on a lot of people's minds is in terms of the trajectory of this war, if it does not go well, how will Putin react? Could you just talk a little bit about you know, your thoughts on this based on what you've observed over the course of these last eight weeks? Well, I think Putin has bet his entire presidency on this war, and he's also uh, a dictator. And I think dictators cannot lose wars by, by definition. So it may be a reality that gets imposed upon him, but it's not an option that he can uh, accept. So I would <laughs> infer from that that he will prosecute this war as long as possible, uh, even if it's a lost war, and he will use the mechanisms of repression in Russia uh, to grind down whatever forces of opposition uh, come his way. 
does that mean he can square this circle? Not necessarily. Uh, if the war goes very badly, and if that becomes unignorable, then I think his presidency is very much in danger, perhaps to a popular uprising or perhaps to a palace coup of some kind uh, within, the, within the Kremlin. But um, the bottom line is it's a war that he cannot afford to lose. Yes, James Marsden called it a war of attrition. Can you just explain what that means? Well, I think it's a war of attrition in the sense that you're not going to have, uh, unless Russia were to mobilize and send millions of troops into Ukraine, which they could, but that would be far in the future. Uh, unless they do that, they're not going to take the capital city of Kiev, and you're not going to get that sort of Second World War moment where it really came to a definitive end. And likewise, uh, Ukrainian armies are not going to be marching to Moscow and imposing their terms uh, on Russia. So you're not going to get that conventional, uh, discrete ending to the war. Uh, it will grind on. Uh, it will have to end in some kind of compromise. Uh, and, and to get to compromise, uh, both sides will have to exhaust themselves uh, somewhat. Uh, and so that attrition can be understood in very practical terms. You run out of ammunition or you run out of the material. Uh, but attrition also can be understood in, a, in emotional terms. You start to lose the will to fight the war, which is really how the First World War ended. It was not that Germany was defeated on the battlefield. It lost the will to fight. Let me go to caller Alex in Mountain View. Hi, Alex. Oh, hi. Yes, I had a, uh, one quick comment and one question. Uh, the comment is that uh, India has been helping Russia since 2014 to evade uh, Western sanctions. And uh, 40% of the Indian population actually supports the Russian invasion, according to the recent uh, story by The Economist. So my question is, why does Western media spend so much time complaining about uh, China's unfulfilled promise to help Russia, yet India has been helping Russia since 2014. Why don't we hear more Western media criticize India for its uh, indifference to the Russian atrocities? Hmm. Michael Kimmage, do you have any thoughts on what Alex is asking here? Sure. I mean, it's an excellent question. I mean, I think the U.S. government is plenty frustrated with uh, with India, so that frustration is certainly there. I mean, vis-a-vis -vis its, its behavior toward Russia since the beginning of the war in February 2022. Um, on the other hand, uh, for the United States, India is primarily a partner in the Indo-Pacific. It's a part of the Quad with Japan, uh, Australia, uh, and uh, and the U.S. And that's sort of the primary area. I don't think the expectation, at least on the part of the government, U.S. government, is that uh, India will play a big role with sanctions or with being critical of Russia. It tends to be uh, a sort of subdued partner of Russia uh, in a number of ways. And that goes back even to the uh, even to the Cold War period. But it would be good, speaking a little bit more broadly, for our media landscape to take into account the global dimensions of this war, because it really does have a lot of global dimensions. And not all of the world is responding to the war as Europe and the United States have. That's a major story. Uh, and it's very worthwhile to go through all the different areas. Uh, it's not just India that's holding back when it comes to sanctions, but it's also uh, Brazil. Uh, and that's a very important conversation to have. And I think our media has definitely been too focused on our response on the one hand and on the response of the Europeans. The, granted, this is a European conflict, but uh, the, global, uh, the global implications deserve a lot more discussion and attention. Understood. Michael Kimmage, professor of history at Catholic University of America. You, our listeners, joining with your questions, 866-733-6786, the number to call. Let me go next to Phil in Burlingame. Hi, Phil. Join us. Hi, you made an excellent point about the susceptibility of Ukrainian rail and so forth. I assume that when the Russians, if they begin to um, see battle defeats in the West, 
they'll retaliate by trying to flatten Lviv and other countries in Russia. So my question is about ground-to-air defense systems like Patriot batteries and the Russian attacks on their air defense system and the use by Zelensky of the term no-fly zone. And if you could just tell us, you know, how Ukraine can defend its skies, at least in the West, and prevent the war from spreading to the entire country. Mm. Phil, thank you. Michael Kimmage. It's a very good question. I mean, I think that there was, there's been a debate over the past couple of weeks, ever since the war began, about a no-fly zone, which is what President Zelensky has requested of the United States and other countries. And that has been, for the Biden administration, a step too far. Uh, it feels too much like entering the conflict uh, directly. So that has been that request has been uh, rejected. Uh, in many ways, it's remarkable how much uh, of Ukrainian air defenses and air power has remained intact. Uh, during this war, and that's thwarted a lot of Russian efforts, but Russia has uh, quite a bit of dominance at the same time when it comes to air power. So I think it's tricky. I don't know how many great options the Ukrainians have uh, in the West. It's going to be a, a struggle for them. I would say that the bombing of Lviv to me sounds uh, uh, unlikely. Episodic bombing, yes, but the sort of leveling of the city sounds unlikely to me. The city I would worry much more about is Odessa, which is mm. on the Black Sea, close to Moldova, not that far from Crimea, and clearly within the Russian sites. Well, James writes, I'm wondering whether your guess thinks Ukraine should have been allowed to join NATO at some point or the European Union. After believing in the 1990s that the NATO expansion was a provocation, I have come to believe that Russia may always have its own cultural mindset of expansionism. What are your thoughts? Well, the latter part of the, of, of the question is, I think, unambiguously true. Russia is an expansionist power. It looks at Ukraine through an, through an imperial lens. Uh, and it has a sense of privilege in the region, extending into Poland and the Baltics, uh, that goes deep into history and will be a worry for a long time uh, to come. Uh, I can only answer the question from the U.S. point of view as a, as a former diplomat and say that for the U.S. to have extended an offer of NATO membership to Ukraine was simply too ambitious. Uh, it's uh, a huge border to defend. Uh, it's something that would have been provocative to uh, to Russia. Uh, and it's just an enormous commitment uh, for the U.S. that I think domestic politics would not uh, bear. So there's a reason why, on a bipartisan basis, American presidents decided not to do that, uh, although they always kept the door uh, open. And it's a bit more practical, I think, on the American side. But you can certainly understand why the, why the Ukrainians would ask for that, uh, uh, for that kind of membership. Uh, and who knows what the future will bring. It looks like uh, Finland and Sweden will be entering into the NATO alliance. So perhaps Similar such surprises could come our way with, with Ukraine. Yes, but you mentioned Western politics. I just do wonder, we just have 10 seconds or so left in terms of the kind of support the West needs to give. Well, the, cru the crucial part of this is humanitarian uh, and it's also military, which is, you know, I think a big success story uh, and needs to be uh, continued. And over time, it will really be economic. Uh, it's not just uh, the support for the Zelensky government during the war. It's going to be the reconstruction of the, of the country. We need to be working on that right now. Well, Michael Kimmich, really appreciate you coming on to speak with us. Thank you so much for having me. Michael Kimmage, an expert on Russia and Ukraine. We've been talking about the war on Ukraine, the stage that it's at right now. And we thank you, our listeners, for joining the conversation. More of Forum after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, 
The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.